0: welcome to the let's talk about parenting podcast with me laura and my lovely mum ruth hi everyone together we'll be discussing all things parenting from education to mental health and everything in between Hi, everyone. Welcome to the Let's Talk About Parenting podcast. I'm Laura Curtis. I'm the founder of of Kids, which is an online educational game for kids teaching them about the histories, geographies, cultures, and stories um, of different countries around the world with a really strong emphasis on the stories of women. And I'm here with my mum, Dr. Ruth Talbot. Hi, everybody. Um, She's a child psychiatrist, and she helps consulting with Quester Kids. And together we do the podcast where we talk about all things to do with parenting, from education to mental health and everything in between. Um, And earlier this week, I had a chance to sit down with... Uh, dr natalie the owner of the doctor and company and you didn't join me no
1: no and i'm looking forward to hearing this
0: um but we had a really interesting conversation which is interesting because i'm not sure that it it's it's immediately clear how it links to parenting but basically dr natalie is an esthetician who does injectables and what the one of the things that she talks about is how The injectables industry in the United States is classed as plastic surgery. So it comes under all these different restrictions and requirements, whereas in the UK, it's not classed as plastic surgery. So people can do a three-day course and learn how to give injectables and then kind of go ahead on their merry way. Whereas Dr. Natalie, trained as a medical doctor and a surgeon, and believes that a lot of the skills that are necessary to be able to responsibly give injectables, like um, patient consent Uh, recognizing underlying mental health conditions all those kinds of things as well as what to do if something goes wrong like basically requires additional training beyond just a three-day course so we had a really interesting conversation about uh, the injectables industry but also how that impacts how that fits into social media and young people's self-esteem because although the kids that we uh, we talk about with Quester Kids are a bit younger than being teenagers. They're already in that pre-teenage space and lots of teenagers end up being quite influenced by the things that they see on social media and having their self-esteem impacted by the industry particularly by these people who sell injectables through through their social media and might be encouraging some problematic practices from a perspective of confidence and self-esteem um but before we do that let's talk about a famous woman as we always do because yeah. quest kids is so strongly focused on the stories of women uh, and i thought a good person to talk about in the context of beauty and what you look like be frida carlo um, she appears as a character in the Mexico Country Quest and she's a really fun one because I deliberately made her character into somebody kind of grumpy, a bit scratchy, a bit rude. In the storyline she's met one of our characters before. They have a shared past history which is extremely contentious so they proceed to have a massive argument uh, in <laughs> in the context of the storyline. But what do you know about Frida Kahlo?
1: Well I know about her having produced really colourful pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, paintings. Pa- paintings, yeah, paintings, that reflect a particular Mexican tradition of, of of producing images, that a lot of the pictures that she produced, the paintings she produced, are self-portraits, mm-hmm. um, and that she has a particular style, and that lots of people have copied that that self portraiture she's become a kind of a pop art kind yes yeah pop culture and that one of the interesting things about her is that she is she often portrays herself as having a black moustache
0: yes yeah um and uh, uh oh and a monobrow unibrow yeah unibrow yeah which is that what it's called? exactly <laughs> <laughs> yeah I find Frida Kahlo a really interesting character she was um Um, Mexican painter uh, married to another very famous Mexican painter Diego Rivera um and they they lived this kind of relatively high society intelligentsia Mexican life they had lots and lots of friends in high places um Trotsky was apparently a lover of her possibly both of them yes (laughs) very exotic Uh, very exotic um but the thing that I I find interesting about not I find interesting but the always strikes me about frida carlo is she was involved in a bus accident when she was uh, in her late teens when she was about 17 um and was severely injured and spent most of her life in varying degrees of pain a lot of the paintings that she did were produced were painted while she was lying flat on her back in bed because that was the only place that she could that's the only position that she could be in to paint comfortably um later on in her life she was quite dependent on Uh, opioids and alcohol and lots of her paintings while there are many paintings that are kind of like the almost like historical examples of selfies where she's dressed up in beautiful clothing with beautiful flowers in her hair and very colorful a a larger part of her paintings actually show her wounded in pain bleeding being operated on they're quite savage um, and difficult there's a really famous one of like a deer running through the woods with like arrows sticking out of it but it's got her head instead of a deer's head wow and there were lots of metaphors about how much pain she was in and also how she couldn't have children and how painful that was for her so her, her lots of her paintings are incredibly beautiful but filled with this really expressive pain and one of the things i find really frustrating about frida carlo is lots of people know about the kind of beautiful selfie type stuff but they don't talk about the pain and the misery that she was in, and also how, like, from anecdotes, she wasn't very nice at the end of her life. (laughs) Like, she was quite mean to people. She did a lot of shouting. And she lived this quite tragic life. Like, her husband cheated on her all the time, which caused her endless suffering, including with her sister. And then she got back together with him after that. So there was this kind of endless struggle. But I wanted to... Make sure that kids understand that Frida Kahlo is not just about being pretty and dressing up in traditional beautiful Mexican clothes, but that there's also a a lot of stuff about pain and beauty and truth. And so the way that I did, but I also wanted it to be something that kids remembered and enjoyed. So what I did with the scene when I wrote it is that I made her this grumpy character, but she has a funny argument with Zeke. But at one point they talk about how maybe the reason that you're grumpy is because you're in pain. And she says, yeah, I am in pain. And I think we don't have a lot of models, particularly for kids, of women who are impressive and also are in pain and also aren't that nice. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> um, and I wanted to make sure that kids also had that perspective on Frida instead of just the pretty woman with the unibrow.
1: And that's that whole thing about sanitizing her. So sanitizing her is just pretty and colorful and light and in a way that's sort of what Dr. Natalie seems to be talking about
0: yeah it's not just about yeah. what you look like there's a whole series of things to to, to, think, to about. think about yeah yeah um and to and to and that none of us can be or should be reduced to just our looks or what we look about look like in a photograph or in a painting
1: uh, and that when we're presented in some image form of an image that it's not just you know there's there's much more to it there's more depth yes yeah um absolutely yeah sounds really really interesting i um yeah well i shan't look at a frida carlo
0: portrait <laughs> in quite the same way again
1: i don't think
0: <laughs> thank you all right let's get on with the episode all right without further ado uh, i'm going to introduce our guest on today's podcast she is dr natalie the owner of doctor and company hi natalie thanks for joining us no problem and today we're going to talk about Well, kind of a range of things, but we're going to talk a bit about your work and what you do, your experience of being a parent. And then I think we're also going to dig in a little bit to some things about kind of aesthetics, cosmetic surgery, self-esteem, social media, and how to talk about all of that or think about all of that with kids from kind of young kids moving up into teenagers. Is that right?
2: Yeah, sounds perfect.
0: Excellent. So tell us, tell us who you are, what you do,
2: uh, how you got there. Um, so I am Dr. Natalie, as I know. I am an aesthetic doctor, a cosmetic doctor. There's lots of different descriptions to mm-hmm. describe what I do. I have been doing this just shy of 10 years. I originally started it on the side of a women's health surgical career. Mm-hmm. Um, and kind of relevant, I suppose, to parenting, decided after my second baby that I was single at the time as well. I couldn't go back to the lifestyle that came along with being a surgical trainee, Mm -hmm. nights, days, weekends. And something that's kind of very topical around the sort of doctor strikes is there is an element of gross unpredictability around medical, especially trainees, and we call these people trainees and we call them junior doctors when actually the people like myself, late 20s, highly trained, yeah. Um, it's almost a derogatory term to call these people trainees and juniors when they are working quite independently. Um, yeah. The unpredictability around unpredictability around um, working patterns. Your, you know, with something as simple as your rotor might not come out. You know, it might come out the week before you start a new job. It might come mm-hmm. out four months before you start a new job. There's no standardisation, but also within that working pattern, you know you can't clock off at five o'clock there is sometimes there's kind of you know things like A&E departments tend to work as proper shifts where you hand over at a certain time but you know there is kind of a um I don't know like a tradition that you don't necessarily hand over everything to the on-call team that you kind of manage your award and handle it till it's done and then only hand over the the emergency stuff and there's a kind of there's almost a martyrdom in that in that you know, Even if you could hand over all that stuff, you shouldn't. You shouldn't do that to other people. So for me, being a surgical trainee and having a two-year-old and a newborn, even though I had an incredible family support network, I kind of almost felt at the time like I was being really selfish and saying, actually, I've got to prioritise my home life and my mental wellbeing. Mm. I was also not having a very good time at the unit that I was working at. I don't feel they were very supportive of working families um and i just thought you know what can i give this injecting thing a go or can i make it work full time so i feel although i would love to say you know what i just found i was amazing at this and i was really skilled at it i was kind of pushed into it i would love to say that it was because i was just so good that i had you know life circumstances that forced me into a position where i had to find something else other than being an nhs women's health doctor Mm -hmm. went to work for a larger company they were an aesthetic company and kind of found me and said you know we could offer you kind of more patients um kind of on a a contract basis but meant that I didn't have to work my office job anymore so I quit that worked for this company for about two and a half years which was an interesting time to say Mm -hmm. the least um (sighs) It was... I I would never regret it. It was a massive eye-opener into the world of aesthetics, Mm. but also into the commercial world, working for a non-medical person um, who had more margins and business at heart than patients, which was very strange to me. Um, Also, some exposure to social media that I had never experienced before and not always positive, Which wasn't pleasant for me, and introduced me to the world of Tattle, which I didn't know existed until I found myself on it, and it was quite unpleasant. So Tattle is a gossip forum, and is very kind of 2004 MSN style. Mm. It is really kind of low tech, you know, literally forums with titles, and it is a gossip forum for social media accounts, and. These people on them can be quite venomous and obsessive, so they're writing on them multiple times a day, usually about your larger accounts, Mrs. Hinge, you know, some okay, yeah, people, yeah. lots of kind of home accounts, mm-hmm. and going into quite a lot of detail, you know, screenshotting when they find addresses on parcels and going to town about people's parenting. Mm-hmm. And I think one influencer had to get the police involved because they were driving past a house, so they could talk about what house looked like. Yeah, it's awful. And I ended up on that through So it's the like sort
0: of stalker adjacent. Yeah, <laughs>
2: exactly. And there's been a lot of talk about banning it, but it's I think it's an Irish um you know, company and mm. there's limited um, kind of legal oh, okay. Recals, abilities yeah. to kind of stop it and you know, these people are also um anonymous. These accounts just have weird and wonderful, yeah. you know, letters and numbers in the name. Um so I ended up on there through the company, and it was it was that association with a company that was highly controversial. And the owner was quite um, honest in saying that a lot of her posts were clickbait driven because mm. it, it created a frenzy and it, it drove it drove her engagement on Instagram. Um, but for as me as a doctor who's got a reputation to uphold and a responsibility with the GMC, where they would say, you know what, even though you weren't controlling that account, you were associating yourself with it and yeah. you need to be more responsible and, and that's kind of in the end what I did that's kind of why I left I managed to finally get divorced and stand on my own two feet in my personal life I made the decision that I was going to do it in my professional life I said you know what if I'm going to be independent let's do it throughout my whole you know life so I did I left there and um, and opened what is now the doctor and company but was originally just called Dr. Natalie Clinics and then COVID hit, which was really fun. <laughs> so, yeah, kind of two months, three months into being Dr. NASA clinics, COVID hit, and I found myself pregnant again, um, which was great. I was pregnant with my now husband, and we were all very happy. Great. But, yeah, opening a business in the middle of a pandemic, again, yeah. wouldn't want to do it again. But I'm one of those people I, I am a believer in. you very cliche saying what doesn't stronger but I think I've become a really resilient person off the back mm-hmm. of um you know being single and pregnant getting divorced opening a business in a global pandemic um it's given me life skills that you will you know you couldn't simulate you couldn't learn them on a course you couldn't do a yeah. webinar about them so and it kind of pushed me from being quite an overthinker you know Struggled with OCD, struggled with intrusive thoughts, mm. um, highly anxious, quite highly strung. So now a patient actually summarised it last week. I said, I don't know what's happened to me, but I've gone from overthinking to underthinking. She said, well, you've been through what you think could be the worst thing. So what else are they going to chuck at you? Absolutely. And I said, exactly. There is nothing you, I have been through what I would consider to be the worst things that anyone can go through. And I'm Okay. So, yeah. so, like, before we really get into it,
0: talk me through, because you, you work in basically kind of in injectables, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Does that count as plastic surgery, cosmetic surgery? Like, what's
2: the, how does the field look? <laughs> it's a very grey area and a big, vague specialty within this country. It's a massive problem within the industry that we are lacking regulations guidelines and a definition of where we sit in the medical field and the problem is Mm -hmm. that it's pushing it out of the medical field and that's the big issue so in America the um, association of plastic surgeons classify things like injectables toxins within the plastic surgery field now that's not the case over here Mm -hmm. there isn't the way that the UK works in terms of medical specialties is that there are royal colleges for each specialty, but aesthetics yeah. doesn't have one. There are some okay. remits within the Royal College of Plastic Surgeons and the Royal College of Dermatologists, but neither of those training programs, so how you become a consultant in this country, have full aesthetic training. And that's you know because they are cosmetic and wouldn't fall under the NHS, and the NHS has driven the Royal College training programmes because that's of where course, you end yeah. up working. Now, there is um, the JCCP, so the Joint Council of Cosmetic Practitioners, who are lobbying the government around aesthetic regulation, but so far they have been unsuccessful in having consensus about how that should happen. And mm. a few years ago, they... Um, brought out a register for people to regulate, you know, to put themselves on. And people like myself and thousands of us across the country were very upset that we would be considered to be um, on the same register as people with zero medical training. And there were a lot of people like myself boycotted the register and said, it's unfortunately... Another register with zero clout, zero ability to actually regulate the industry, that it's making money off us. Um, There are some more developments more recently where the JCCP have lobbied the government to say that the training standard will be regulated. Okay. Which is a positive step because even within medics, doctors, nurses, dentists, midwives, there is a A huge spectrum of quality of training, and Mm. therefore, even within the medical practitioner sector, there will be different levels of quality of care, which shouldn't happen. They should all be a standardized quality, you know, um, quality of of, of care for patients. They are at the minute going to include non medical practitioners within that ability to gain that level seven qualification, and then someone like myself who has undergraduate qualifications, postgraduate qualifications, have passed surgical exams, I'm sitting my master's in aesthetics, I would still not be level 7 qualified. So it doesn't quite make any sense that you can have someone who does a two to three day course with no experience in any medical field and then goes on to complete a level 7 course who would then be considered to be equally as qualified as me And I think in the past, I have had reservation in saying that because, probably because I'm a woman and Mm -hmm. I have imposter syndrome, but someone who has sat a two-day anatomy and physiology course and a one-day Botox and fillers course is not as qualified as me who has a medical degree and several postgraduate qualifications. And now I have no issue with saying that and I will be able to justify why that is the case but in the past i would always been quite polite and not wanting to put my head above the parapet and not wanting to be opinionated on the matter but unfortunately I see damage to patients on a daily basis by non-medical practitioners and yes there are people within the medical field who have also caused damage to patients but people like me and doctors other doctors and dentists and nurses would be struck off. There is no regulatory body for a non-medical practitioner and that is the problem that is where the problem lies there are no consequences so actually I've heard other practitioners non-medical practitioners bragging that they don't have insurance because well then they can't be sued there's no point Um, having insurance because the patient would have to seek damages personally against them and they say well I just say I have no money it's kind of such an unprofessional and unethical way of practicing but unfortunately yeah. it is legal in this country and there are lots of reasons why we have come to this point primarily because we are not a private you know sector that we yep. medical you know medicine in this country is, is nationalized and therefore we've kind of fallen into this problem but it's also around the way that you purchase injectables so mm-hmm. fillers are completely unregulated anybody can go and buy them from anywhere toxins are a prescription only medication and should be difficult to get hold of that's like are... botox and stuff it is yeah, yeah yeah so that that's should be difficult for um, people to get hold of because it requires a prescriber to meet that patient face to face but there are obviously Backstreet ways of getting hold of any of this. There are yes. unfortunately some medical practitioners who have been, um, you know, caught out for supplying medications for a profit, always. which there will always be. There will always be yes, some bad actors. You know, it's always going to happen. Uh, but the government have allowed this to happen. They are putting people at risk by not regulating. And I am one that believes that this is around tax so they make income tax against people who own businesses they make corporation tax and one big thing is if they medicalise this this will allow aesthetic companies to be completely VAT deregistered therefore no VAT will be paid on aesthetic Uh, treatments and for the government they obviously see that this industry turns over some years more than I think the car industry I heard one quote yeah so that's a big it's a big portion of, of money for the government to lose out on so i think there are you know they say it's difficult because it'll force people underground when actually i think the reality is that they just see that they're going to lose out on some yeah concepts. and i also think there's a, I do not i don't i've never had i've never had any any kind of aesthetic procedures
0: but i i know people who have and I don't know that if they knew that the person who was doing that to them only had a three-day training course, I think they would think differently about how it's working. It's not just about government regulations as such. It's also about the awareness for people of, you know, they don't necessarily know that somebody who has absolutely no training and doesn't have any insurance
2: is injecting things into their face. This is it. There's a lack of education around it. But I think what um, some non-medical training providers argue their opinion or their um, reasoning is that doctors and nurses and dentists only do a two to three day course for their Botox Mm. and fillers, but they forget that the core skills are taught on their five-year, you know, degrees and three-year diplomas. Absolutely. So things like, I always give an example that uh, consent, so discussing consent with patients, at my mm-hmm. university, I went to the University of Manchester and we did five days with actors who had been brought in specially to train us on valid consent and whether we felt that person understood what they were being consented for, whether they could repeat it, mm-hmm. you know, in, consent in different circumstances. And, you know, if I had to do five days on consent, but you're only doing a two day course on everything, mm-hmm. I always say to people, you know, do you not think that that might? That pose a problem here we always do you know at the beginning of your um clinical years at medical school you do a few days on what's called antiseptic non-touch technique so working out how to handle medical equipment in a sterile yeah. manner and w- where's that covered you know That's safe crazy. disposal of sharks safe disposal of clinical waste where's mm-hmm. that covered on it anatomy and physiology and people say yeah well i didn't do any anatomy on my you know my um or, you know dentists don't do enough anatomy and I, mm. you know i said we do two years in the cadaver lab dissecting dead bodies yeah. working out where these blood vessels run and yes some of the universities are better at it than others but you all did it to an extent where you passed an exam on it so yeah. you cannot cannot ever will not ever convince me that a two three day course is a replacement for my five-year medical degree and then the courses that i've done after
0: Absolutely, and also, like, you can't, you also can't say that, the, presumably, there's an exam at the end of three days, I mean, I hope
2: there's an exam. Well, at the end say, and days. we always say, you know, how many how many of these training courses, we would love to do a freedom of information at request and say, how many of them do you fail? Yeah, How many actually exactly. don't pass? They're paying exactly. you, you know, some of the courses are about £8,000, are you actually telling me you're going to fail someone who has paid you £8,000 for three exactly. days? Because that's not the case, whereas we'd... I, I provide training with aesthetics, and if I feel someone is not quite where I want them to be, I bring them back for further training. I say, no, you yeah. need to come and see me for a few more days until we kind of, you know, we work this out. So it, it's a problem. It's going to be a bigger problem in the future until the government actually, you know, legislate on it. And so far, they've been so reluctant to do so. Mm-hmm. Um and I, you know, I do believe that that's because it's, it's financially driven. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. I had no, I had no idea that that, that was kind of, it sort of almost sounds like a sort of cowboy environment. It, it's exactly it. It's the Wild West. That, that's what yeah. aesthetics is at the minute. It's the Wild West
0: absolutely crazy well and that's really that's also interesting because the it seems like the the aesthetic surgery or the cosmetic
2: surgery surgery industry
0: is booming right it's, it's absolutely we
2: have had post-covid um clinics like myself we've seen a 400 percent increase wow. in patient numbers and turnover and whether that's because people didn't spend much in covid or it's because all their aesthetic treatments ran out in covid Mm -hmm. It will be hard to ever define the reasons for patient-seeking aesthetic treatment. Um, But, I mean, it's great for us. We're nice and busy. We're, we're, you know, we're doing well. But I do think the aesthetic treatments that people are seeking are changing. It's not how it used to be when I first started, certainly. Around people are starting to realise that you can't just have a bit of Botox and a lip filler and expect to look 10 years younger there is a wider treatment program available Mm -hmm. but also there are more efficient and effective ways to treat your skin other than just injectables and I think that's where we've seen our practice grow not just injectables but around device-based treatment skincare lifestyle we are having so many inquiries about biohacking hormones and how that would improve your appearance as well as you know your kind of mental health yeah we're also seeing a lot of patients seeking things like um kind of lumps and bumps removal so things they can't get through the gp at the minute because the wait lists are just too long Uh, so non-malignant mole removal cherry angioma removal things like that we've got a lot of patients coming in saying i'd rather just pay i don't want to hang around for two years with my gp waiting for something to be taken off Um, And I think that's obviously reflecting the the problems that we've got in primary care and then referral on to to secondary care for things.
0: Definitely, definitely. Okay, so it's coming from sort of a a whole series of different angles. Exactly, yeah. And do you think, I mean, given how long you've been in the industry now, do you think that people are wanting cosmetic procedures younger? Are they younger? Are you seeing younger people in your office or is it
2: kind of staying the same? My patient base has always been quite young. When I first opened the practice a couple of years ago, my average age age of patient was about 24. Okay. But what I think people are starting to realise is that you actually don't treat a patient's age, you treat their skin. So you can have a Mm -hmm. 19-year-old who has inherited poor skin quality with, you know, lines and thin skin, and you can have a 45-year-old who doesn't require any aesthetic treatment. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, people always say, am I too young for this? Well, as long as you're 18, because that is the law of when yep. we can treat you. Um, no, there is nothing inappropriate to start too young. Nothing's going to make you look worse if you have it when you're younger. But you also, again, from having a medical background, you're also thinking about consent and um what are the patient's drivers for this treatment? And you ask sometimes, like, what's brought you in? Um, yeah. And kind of digging down into the. And some patients, sometimes it's, I've always had a bump in my nose. I got bullied about it at school. It's upset me yeah. for a long time. I can have this procedure done. It cost me about 500 quid. It'll last me a couple of years and I don't have to have a general aesthetic. Perfect. Yep. Sensible thinking. Whereas you might have someone show you a heavily filtered Snapchat photo of themselves and you have to kind of break it down in a very polite way and say, listen, I can't make you look like this. A plastic surgeon yeah. couldn't make you look like this. Or they'll show you a picture of an influencer and you say, they don't even look like this. Yeah. And it's that kind of finding out the motivators is more important than actual a number to me yeah. anyway. That's what where I would... Um, say it's appropriate to treat a patient with the motivation and how they actually look rather than what their age shows. Yeah. But I can also imagine that like, I mean,
0: I'm sure. And it sounds like that your company is very holistic and responsible, but actually if you've got these people who are like three day trained cowboys, then they're not doing any of that thinking, presumably. They're not doing any of that questioning of, hang on, what is the motivation here?
2: Yeah, and we see this quite a lot where I do a lot of corrections. I've done thousands of dissolving of, of fillers over the years, and mm. we see this kind of lack of consultation. So actually, mm. you know, numbing creams on in the waiting room by the receptionist. You come in, you sign your consent form, and you lie down, almost kind of, you know, um, kind of a high turnover of patients and there's no question of what do you want or why do you want it it's kind of a lie down inject and then leave and and i have a couple of patients daughters who have gone elsewhere underage not been id'd not been questioned and now have luckily poor aesthetic outcomes but you know thankfully no complications and they're just going to have to wait it out till they're 18 and then we can dissolve and And move on from there. And I think that is the problem that when you don't have experience with working with patients out of an aesthetic setting, you lack those core skills of being able to take a full medical history, take a psychological history. And understand that patient's motivation and whether it's appropriate for treatment at that time. There are some patients that come to me who I just feel are psychologically vulnerable. And I will Mm. say, let's have a think about this. Let's have a cooling off period. Let's go away. Let's come back in a few weeks time and see, do you still feel like this? Yeah. Um, When people have recently got divorced, when, you know, big life, you know, sometimes we, you know one patient described to me that when you're in your 50s you're you get divorced you go through menopause and your mum dies and yeah. it's kind of you get three massive hits and you turn up in my clinic and say fix me and I say you need therapy not me you know exactly. and, and that's a conversation that I will have and I'll be very honest and say I don't think you're in a position to make a decision about your face mm. go away come back and see me again when you're feeling better And I see these patients again, and we might do a little tweak in the future, but they're always grateful that you looked after their psychological well-being first and foremost before before injecting them and then making a decision that they might not have made had they been feeling so vulnerable. But I hear stories about those vulnerabilities actually being played on and profited from, which is just... it, It doesn't sit well with me ethically. I went into being a doctor to make people feel better but also because I am aware that I would be strung up in front of the GMC if I made those oh, decisions. Yeah. You know, there is that. I wouldn't do it because I'm an ethical person, but equally, even if I was out to make a quick book, well, I'd be found out pretty quickly. So yeah. that, that's, you know, that's where there is protection for patients. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And it's also uh, talking about that kind of vulnerable age. I mean, when you're young, i mean luckily you can't do this to kids who are under 18 but um but it is that is a vulnerable stage right your early 20s you're hyper focused on what other people think of you and what you look like and you know there's and if if somebody comes along and says look here's a solution i can make you look like an instagram model or like you know oh you thought that bump in your nose wasn't that bad but actually i can really really see it then you can absolutely see how people are vulnerable to that
2: Absolutely, and there are kind of it's – a, it's a bit of a trend on TikTok and Instagram for companies to take pictures of inst- of influencers or celebrities and take away what they perceive to be their aesthetic treatment and say, ooh, look what they'd look like without a chin and without lips. And then people go, well, that's what I look like. I can have that fixed. Yeah, And, exactly. and that's, again, it's preying on vulnerabilities of people um, to – point out things that they may have never noticed about themselves before and this is something that's changed within my clinic and i've had to have there's a balance to be struck where i would always say what bothers you you tell me what do you see in the mirror what can i help with and then you also get on the flip side people who say i don't know i just want to feel fresher and it then becomes a bit of a stalemate where i say well I don't know, you need to tell me because I don't want to give you a complex about things that you didn't already have because (laughs) I do this full time and I can pick out 20 things on your face, but I would never do that to you because it's mean. (laughs) Um, So then I say, right, okay, you tell me what you think is wrong and they'll say, okay, there's something wrong here on the lower bit of my face. And I say, right, okay, yes, you've got a little bit of a weak chin and we can help that with this. So there's a balance to be struck with that. You know, you don't want to be the doctor who tells them they need 25 mils and a lot of Botox. But equally, you can't say, no, you've got to tell me the problem because you're the expert, you actually know where the treatment should be. And someone will come in and say, I don't like the lower half of my face, please do my lips. And you go, absolutely not because your chin is recessed and you would look worse with your lips done. And that's where Mm -hmm. your professionality comes in and how you phrase that and how you approach it is the skill not to yes. offend or upset someone and give them more things to think about but equally to make them feel better when they leave. Um, and I think that's a skill that's taken me quite a long time to hone and, and to perfect and sometimes you still you know thinking you kind of get to grips with how that patient will respond so having a little bit of a chat first and foremost trying to gather about the patient before you step into that and think actually can I be? completely frank and honest and you will i do have a group of patients who come in and go you know they usually they're regulars and they go what do i need do it and yeah, yeah. you know from years yeah. of treating them you're not going to offend them they just want a, a you know a refresh and they trust you you trust them whereas new patients you kind of want to meet them a few times and and get a hang of um of, of what they want but what they can handle um so that's yeah that's definitely something you've got to got to get good at
0: yeah. Okay. Let's like m- move over a little bit and talk a little bit about, because this is a parenting podcast yes. and you are a parent. Yes. Um, and even though your kids are definitely not old enough to no. be to <laughs> any kind of intervention, yeah. this point, <laughs> um, I, I'd be interested to, to kind of know, you know, is that is this something that happens that you have parents who come in and say, you know, my, my underage child wants this done. What do you think? How does this work? What role do you think that parents have in helping kids to understand, you know, some of the social media stuff that we're talking about, yeah. about how insecurities do get played upon and there is an encouragement to have aesthetic tweaks in kids who maybe that's not what they should be thinking about right now.
2: I think it's kind of it's definitely parents responsibility to have that frank discussion and yeah. say this exists you know don't hide from it yeah. i'm a very open parent about all things that might be slightly taboo um you know about i know some parents kind of have difficulty with discussions about all sorts with children, sex, alcohol, yeah. drugs, and I'm pretty lucky. I've got a really good group of friends, and one of my friends is a safeguarding manager, and she's kind of pushed me into that more open yeah. um, conversations with my kids because you know she said that's that's the best way to be. But I do think it is worth having that conversation with your children because they are going to see it on tiktok and instagram there is no getting away from it these companies are not regulating your feed enough they're not tweaking the algorithm to avoid this happening and you you know you'll see it every day that you look at a couple of posts on i don't know turf in your garden and the 20 posts after it are all about (laughs) you know buying turf for your garden so the more you look at things the more it will appear in your you know on your feed and i think it's it's worthwhile having that conversation and saying these are available, you know. Um, but talking about this, it's almost like drugs, talking about the safe way to do it. Yeah. You know, seeking a responsible practitioner. Should we go together? If you think your child is going to seek an aesthetic treatment, if you know they hate their nose, you know, parents tend to know these things about their children, don't they? Yeah. Of having you know, the, the tweaking them images, the taking them from certain angles. Um, say to them, these treatments do exist. This is my opinion. I don't think you should have it done, but please tell me if you know if you're thinking about it, and then we can talk. Have about an open dialogue. Having it. exactly that—that's exactly it. And I think once upon a time, my kids didn't really know what I did. Um, they knew I was a doctor. They know I did injections, um, and now they're in clinic all the time. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, they get dropped off sometimes when I'm finishing, and it's a bit more apparent, you know, what I do. So I do have those conversations that mummy makes people feel better. So I try not yep. to concentrate on and make people look different and okay, make them yeah. feel better about themselves um, in the hope that my daughters will grow up to know that these things exist, that maybe that there is a way of doing it. And the, the brilliant thing about most aesthetic treatments, 99% of them, is that they're temporary and reversible. Yeah. Is that if you didn't like something that you had done, you can get rid of it. But if you go to someone appropriate and responsible and safe then it's less likely that you're going to dislike it and you know you're going to spend sort of less money on it and I think it's worth having that conversation about you you know pay right pay once that conversation of yes someone's doing lips for 80 quid down the road but actually are they going to be what you want them to be if they're only charging 80 pounds what's actually in them is it Mm -hmm. actual filler is it being bought responsibly um, are they going to see you again if there's something wrong? And I think that's the crux. So I always say to people, when you're considering your practitioner and you're thinking, oh, she's £400 and she's 80 what's going to happen if the shit does hit the fan? Yeah. Who is going to look after you when you have a blocked blood vessel, an infection, just a whacking hematoma that needs looking after and reassurance, yeah. and that's what the crux it and that's the conversation that I would have. Of who's going to look after you if it, if it does go wrong? It's also the social media aspect of it that, you know, we know that I think the statistics are one in four adolescents would say that they would have to edit their image to be happy with it. Yeah. On a on a you know, on a, an editing program. And that is the problem within yeah. kind of within social media and self-esteem in in teenagers is that we are bombarding them with these perfect images constantly. And And from a
0: really young age as well. A really,
2: really young age. um, And talking to to children and teenagers about how how unrealistic a lot of these images are Mm -hmm. and saying to them that this actually is not just... Someone who it doesn't exist, and that's what I'm always trying to get across to my friends as well as my children. They'll say, oh, "Such a body looks perfect," and you say, "Well, actually, no. That is probably an edited image. No yeah. one can achieve that, not Absolutely. even with surgery or aesthetics. And these images aren't real that you're seeing. And I think that's that's a, a bigger issue. That you know, if you were watching, you know, kind of cartoons constantly your version of other people would be distorted. So that's what's happening to us. We're constantly bombarded with images that, that don't exist. And we are then looking at ourselves in the mirror and we have pores and we have loose skin and we have yeah. spots and baggy eyes when we wake up in the morning. And that happens from you know being teenagers. You, you have spots and oil and, and obvious things on a, on a camera that you're not seeing on an image from an influencer because it's been carefully selected and airbrushed and made to be perfect before it's posed but me as a nearly 35 year old woman with four children and a business god i still even look at my own images and go oh i hate that so how do we think the mental health is going to be of a 14 year old who hasn't got those life skills to go well that, you know, that's kind of like, it's a bad angle. You know, they don't have the appreciation that no, that is absolutely... a real image. Yeah. But equally, that the way you look is also not the important thing. And yeah. I think that I comes think with maturity.
0: Thing. Yeah. There's a couple of things. I mean, like the, the, the first one is, I, I was having a conversation with some kids not that long ago about, is what is on the internet real? Yeah. Exactly. And they all yeah. think that everything that's on the on the internet is real. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah. You know,
0: yeah, yeah. because because you know, that for, and it, it makes sense because for so long that's how like we thought of things. Like if it's in a book, okay, it's real. Yeah, if it's on the yeah. internet, it's real. And they 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 we mistake sometimes that their capacity to 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 be able to work out when somebody's you know messing with them yeah. is not very good, yeah. especially when it's yeah. online. Um, and then and then in addition to that, there is this you know social media is incredibly visual and there is this really strong focus on what things look like and a lack of actually it matters that you're kind to people it matters mm-hmm. that you work hard it matters that message doesn't get reinforced very often
2: absolutely um, not yeah it's just, I, I think it's absolutely our responsibility and I am um, aware of it I my I've got two daughters and I think more so with them maybe than the boys I think the boys are a little bit less image conscious than than Mm. the girls but things like I am quite heavily into fitness so I try and portray a positive body image of activity of working out of that being part of our lifestyle and not just for weight loss because I think that certainly in my generation I think you're probably very similar Laura that yeah and slim fast calorie counting was a big thing. My mum never exercised, she just dieted. And yeah. I think that I'm trying to, you know, kind of get rid of that idea um that it's about health and not kind of weight. But equally, if we're going on holiday and I'm doing a calorie deficit, I do weigh my food. But I will try mm-hmm. and do that without the children looking. Because they ask, yeah. me, What are you doing? That's weird. Yeah. and I'm like well it is but you can't really guess how much pasta is in the bowl and (laughs) I want to track it and trying to explain that I'm doing that as a responsible adult who has nutritional coaching is different to someone who's eating half a cucumber because they've seen on tiktok that it doesn't contain any calories and 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 that's where it's difficult because they're watching you all the time and it's the same with injectables that I wouldn't want my children necessarily to Think that mummy looks like a different person because of mm-hmm. injectables because yeah. that would be, you know, it'd be hypocritical of me to say you're so beautiful, you don't need anything, but then I'm having all this treatment. And I think that's where our clinic ethos is always a, the best version of yourself. And yes. Yes, we absolutely are profiting from aesthetic injectables. So it would be stupid to say that you should be happy with the way you are because I'm also quite passionate about making independent choices especially with around being a woman and not being told to what i need to look like and i will look like how i want to um but we should do that in a responsible manner that appreciates you as an individual and we don't do any copy and pasting we just make you the best version of yourself
0: yeah and i guess that's also the advantage of injectables rather than more dramatic surgical interventions is you're not going to totally transform somebody's face. You're just going to enhance different aspects of it.
2: Exactly. And that's where aesthetic injectables has such a an advantage over surgical procedures, because the majority of them are reversible and temporary. And if you don't like them, you can get rid of them or they will wear off. And, yeah. and that's what's wonderful about it. And I think there are some procedures within, a, within the surgical kind of... Um, specialty that will dwindle. So things like nose surgery, I don't know the figures, but I would guess that it was probably um on the sort of on the decline because we can achieve such good results with filler. And mm. yes, they carry their own risks and that's a conversation to be had. But they're also temporary. You know, surgical rhinoplasty is the most revised surgery and you know, that, that exists. It's done multiple times and people mm. are unhappy. But nose filler can be dissolved and redone you know within a week and there's no general aesthetic involved and there's no um massive downtime so i do think aesthetic you know injectables is becoming a bigger specialty yeah and that's where the lines are getting blurred between plastic surgery and aesthetics because we used to deem plastic surgery where there was a cut to the skin where something was in the body and there are some treatments now that we do in clinics that might cut the skin and we might put something in the body but they would be deemed to be non-surgical just a little bit more invasive and we're probably going to have more of a division of non-invasive and invasive rather than Mm. plastic surgery and injectables because the lines are being blurred and and that's with you know advances with technology and but also advances around anesthesia so we can numb someone rather than knock them out
1: um
2: but again that lies a danger that we're going to have non-medics performing minor surgery in. Yeah. Of course it doesn't until the government regulate on that. We're going to be stuck in this high risk sort of place really.
0: Yeah. yeah. So just, just, to make sure that we are covering, because you mentioned it, what are some of the risks that people should be thinking about if they're talking about injectables? Um, and and what would you recommend to kind of? We've already talked quite a lot about what you would recommend in order to be able to yeah. mitigate those yeah. risks. But what are the things that people should be discussing with a, a provider?
2: There are some risks that wouldn't necessarily be deemed a risk; would be more of a known side effect things like Mm. swelling and bruising it's a given you are putting a needle into your skin you cannot expect your body to not respond to that and you know if you didn't bruise and bleed then we'd be worried actually that you didn't you know you weren't a human um so you know mitigating that is booking a treatment when you have downtime so don't rock up to clinic and say well my wedding's tomorrow because you know that's silly (laughs) um Things like infection, the infection risk is incredibly low for these procedures. Actually, um, I'm talking a handful in my entire career, luckily. But you should be asking your provider. What happens if I get an infection? Who can I contact? Mm. What are your um, What are your policies for out of hours contact? So we yeah. always. The last thing I say to a patient as they leave the door is, "Call us during opening hours." emails out of that time and we have a policy around triaging emails at bedtime and first thing in the morning. And we should always our providers, um, you know, you're going on holiday tomorrow. What happens if you're abroad and I'm here with an infection or worried about a big bruise and we should be saying to them, who covers you while you're away? Do you have a network of colleagues? Are you part of a complication mm-hmm. network? Because they exist. There is no way of getting around. Practitioners work independently a lot of the time. I'm quite lucky. I have other doctors that work for me. But I have a big group of peers. That if I said, I'm off to New York tomorrow and I've got a patient that I'm a bit concerned about, I'm going to have a group of willing doctors and dentists and nurses going. I'll check in with them. Don't worry. So Do you know, asking... it's so funny you say that.
0: I, um, I I didn't know about this sort of network of doctors until yeah. we were travelling when I was younger with my dad and he ended up getting a detached retina while we were in the jungle in costa rica oh, gosh and he rang a friend of his who's a um uh ophthalmologist and said do you know anyone he said oh yeah yeah someone." Yeah. i know someone, I'll know someone. exactly, <laughs> someone exactly. Say. Honestly,
2: <laughs> every time people say to me such and such a thing and i'll say i know someone who does that let me you yeah. there is that kind of worldwide network of doctors and it i don't know it's almost like kind of like in the military you've got veterans and yeah that's how you become there's um, always a base there is exactly there's always someone someone will always put you up but you should be asking that question of you know who looks after me if you are not around and you know we're not always on call we get drunk we you know out of the country we don't we don't answer our phone sometimes so what what's the kind of emergency policy is a good question beyond that your more kind of serious concerns are the individual risk that comes with dermal filler is that it is a gel substance and it can block a blood vessel and if that happens whatever that blood vessel was supplying no longer has a blood supply and that is usually in most circumstances tissue skin so that patient needs to have their filler reversed now filler reversal drugs are prescription only medications Okay, and they should only be used in the trained hands of a medically qualified person because they also have some side effects that come with them. So we should be asking: Do you stock it? Do you have it in the cupboard? Do you, have you got access to it? Do you know how to use it? Have you been trained how to use it? Yeah, and um, because that's an important thing, you know. A lot of my doctors who I train say that actually the complications management is is much more anxiety, um, you know, provoking than actually injecting and yeah. knowing how to fix the. Um, the kind of errors are the biggest problem the biggest thing and um, so we should be saying what's your policy for you know and um, blocked blood vessels and do you have advice that you can seek if you can't manage this yourself because there is also no shame in saying I don't know how to manage this yeah who do exactly it's too big for me and even as someone like me who's extremely experienced, I had a patient who had not been injected by myself, been injected by someone else, and had a very um, nasty necrotic face, basically. Mm -hmm. Was beyond the point of being able to be dissolved, and I ended up admitting her to a hyperbaric oxygen chamber on the Wirral that was usually used for the bends, for divers who'd suffered the bends. Obviously, that is beyond my remit, and she yep. was very well looked after by the doctors there and went on to have a very successful recovery and has no scarring, which is great. But do you have those escalation guidelines or that, you know, yeah. do you know who you refer on to certain things? Um, because we can't manage this all ourselves. Yeah. So that that's something else you, you, you could ask. Um so yeah, that's that's what I would have been asking around complications, kind of who's gonna look after me, okay. what are your guidelines and have you got contacts, basically?
0: Awesome. Well, and then one final thing, which is one of my personal uh things that I get really focused on, but you are a very strong proponent of uh skincare and yep. sun cream particularly. Yep. Yep. Um, which I'm really, really for because I find that I'm, inc- uh, like, you might not be able to see quite how pale I am, but I'm incredibly <laughs> pale. <laughs> like, yeah. There's no such thing as tanning in my life. It just goes burn and then straight And back then white skin. again, yeah. But I'm a real, I, I find it really distressing when people don't wear enough sun cream, when they don't put yeah. enough sun cream on their kids. Yeah. Um, and they end up, kids end up with a lot of skin damage
2: before they've yeah. even started, got to the stage where they're exactly. even thinking about their skin. Exactly, and it's something that we're just not taught properly in this country because, well, it's not sunny a lot of the time. And yeah. one of the big things I say to patients is you need to stop thinking about sunlight being a reason to wear SPF, and you need to think about daylight. So not sunlight, mm. daylight. Even if it's cloudy and dull, you are still being touched by those UV rays. Yeah. So talking about daily SPF. Other countries do this much better than us. So, the likes of Australia, the the SPF free on the beach, and and they kind of are um, big advocates of daily SPF. Now, we as Brits kind of think about SPF to buy for your holidays. You know, you don't even buy it for this country. And that's kind of how I was brought up. My mum was very dark skinned. She had a sunbed in the loft. You know, that's that's how I was raised. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't until I did this job. That really, I knew that the sunbeds were were dangerous. Irony, I mean, and this will probably be clipped up as a soundbite. The irony is, I paid my way through medical school by working in a sunbed shop. Did you really? (laughs) I studied my medical degree, sat at a desk in a sunbed shop. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, it paid the bills. But... I am, you know, now militant with my SPF, me and my best friend who also worked in the sunbed shop, always laugh about the fact that we worked in the sunbed shop and now we're putting SPF on the back of our hands. You know, it's <laughs> it is, it, it's quite a turnaround, but it should be something that we just get into the daily habit of. My seven-year-old has an SPF spritz she puts on every morning because I've talked mm-hmm. to her about the, um, the dangers of the sun. Yeah. And... But you know they are still quite like. Obviously, my suntan, They went to Cornwall with the daddy, and they were showing me the and am you know the the sun tan lines. And it's inevitable that that's going to happen, of course. But trying to get them in the habit of putting sun cream on before they leave the house is a big thing. And I always my kids get when we go on holiday, or if it's, you know it's it's a warm day here. I put sun cream on that before breakfast, let it soak in, make it something that's not, right, we're going outside and let's get our sun cream on. Um, but it's easily forgotten about, especially when you're in this country. Yeah. Um, I have it in the boot of the car, just as a, you know you know what it's like here, the sun can come out at any time. Yeah, yeah, we yeah. were last weekend, it was gorgeous, sat in the garden at my sister-in-law's. Um, my youngest child has white hair and it was my sister-in-law who went, sun cream and I was like oh my gosh sun cream sun cream get everybody get sun cream on but I think it's something that we just need to educate children about more and one of the things that I always say as well to my kids and to patients is there's no such thing as a healthy tan no if you That's have exactly a tan yeah if you That's have a tan that is an indication that your your um, melanin has gone into protection mode yeah. melanin is a pigment in your skin that acts like an umbrella to cover your cell's nucleus, and your cell's nucleus contains DNA. DNA damage causes skin cancer and ageing skin. So your melanin comes out, to put the umbrella over the nucleus to say, I don't want the sun to touch this, and that in turn makes your body brown. So if you have gone brown, your body's trying to protect itself from the sun, and obviously like me and you, Laura, we're Fitzpatrick one to two. We don't have a lot of melanin. Nope. We can't protect ourselves very well. None to exactly. So we, we we don't do it very well. I'm pretty lucky. My mum's really dark, so I don't tend to burn, but equally I don't tend to tan very much either. Um so we just need to get in the habit and we need to have a re education around tanning. Unfortunately we've inherited a kind of nineteenth, eighteenth century opinion that Um, if you are tanned, you are rich. You're you're kind of, you know, we've inherited that. It used to be if you were pale, you were rich because you didn't work outside. And then we invented travel and you were rich because you were tanned and you went on holiday. holiday. Um, And I'm kind of seeing, you, you know, you see this on TikTok and Instagram, that trend of now what I would describe as clean girl aesthetic of kind of glossy, pale, kind of silky skin. I will speak to you in a minute. I am not far off being done, darling. Okay. Um, yeah, we are definitely see more of a move towards skin health. And one of the kind of skincare regimes that we put patients on, we talk really, we talk really heavily about. Let's make your skin healthy first. Let's not talk about yeah. cosmesis and cosmetics and aesthetics. Let's talk about skin health. And when it's healthy, it works better and it looks better. So that would be the minimum standard is SPF. If you're gonna come to me and have Botox and not wear SPF, I'm gonna tell you off because it's a waste of your money. It's a waste of my yeah. time, and um, it's 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 ridiculous to go on the sunbeds, go on the sunbeds and have Botox because you're just reversing any any positive effects that you've yeah. you've you've created by going on something that not only does a sunbed speed not only does a sunbed bed speed your aging process process up dramatically. It also doesn't give you the same sort of tan as the sun. So this mm. is another misconception that the rays that come out of a sunbed are very different to the rays that come out of the sun. And there are two different wavelengths. One of them causes skin damage and one of them causes genuine tan. And the one that causes the skin damage is the sunbed. It causes yeah. a temporary tan with the protecting protection but it doesn't drive your body to produce more melanin. It just makes it do- the melanin that you've got darker yeah i'm really glad that you say that because it's something that i find i find
0: really distressing when i see friends with kids not thinking about this for no. their kids because
2: the thing is kids don't have the capacity to recognize that oh, and do it for themselves do the got to do it for you've them. got to do it for them and you've yeah. got to make it kind of um You've, you've got to make it so that they want to do it. So, you know, I know some companies do, like, blue sun cream and make it fun. I send mine with a roll-on for school, so they have a little roll-on SPF in their bags. To make it a responsibility of theirs, as well as, you know, mummy's making me wear sun cream, you kind of say, well, actually, this this is part of your self-care, not just me being an also, you know, overprotective mum. And it comes from parenting as well. I've not quite got my husband around to the idea that, you should wear SPF 50 all over your body, even in the British sun. He's not quite there yet. Still looks like one of those. No, my husband's the same as well. Every time I'm like... Every time, every time. time. And he looks like one of those. Is it a squashy, that sweet that's like pink and white?
0: That's how he looks like with the shorts.
2: (laughs) I just think, are you ridiculous? But yeah, it's me kind of banging the drum around SPF and reapplication and putting it on after you've got out of the pool and... And also, what my mum used to have because we,
0: you know, we don't have a choice. We, we weren't the yeah. ones where yeah.
2: like parents could learn with us, but we had the yeah long sleeve. This is it. This is what I've got. My girls were going away in June, and it's just easier for them to wear SPF 50 clothing, um, yeah. and it protects them. You know, put over the shoulders, especially. It's a really kind of yeah. hot area. And another thing, actually, which patients don't realize, and they come and say, "Why is my pigment so bad on my cheeks and my nose?" So, you're wearing aviators, you've got mirrored sunglasses on. Oh, They're literally that's... being reflected from your sunglasses onto your cheeks.
0: That.
2: Yeah, and people who ski a lot. So, people who wear these big reflective goggles and then wonder yeah. why they've got pigment all over the cheeks, and it's because the, the, the mirror is literally f- reflecting onto their upper cheek. Oh, yeah. So, that's another thing. If you're someone who suffers from pigment and melasma, you know, get black black sunglasses. Mmm that's a really good tip. Okay,
0: thank you so much for joining us. It's been such oh, no, an interesting. Thank conversation. you very much. All right, that was a really interesting uh, episode from Dr. Nat. I didn't realize that the UK industry was quite as unregulated um as it as it seems to be. I don't think that I would get injectables. Well, you never say never, but right now, but I definitely wouldn't be getting them with somebody who learned how to do it no, in, in 3, three days. days. <laughs> Um, And I think it was really interesting. I don't know if you heard the bit where she was talking about how when she went to medical school, she did three or four days training on consent and the different types of consent. And it's not just a case of like, sign this piece of paper, there we go. But it's about about what informed consent is, different ways that you can talk to people in a gentle and a caring way and kind of more the responsibility that you have. Yeah, yeah,
1: um, yeah. Well, I think especially if you're, changing somebody yeah and and you know also whether through surgery yeah yeah whether it's changing their appearance or whether it's changing their, their their function you are affecting their body in a in a way which is not insignificant
0: yeah yeah um, uh, all right. It's time for a listener question. Um, and we've got, we've got a good one today, which was going to bring up a story, I think, <laughs> as they always do. You see a story coming. I do you? see a story coming, uh, coming down the path. Okay. Uh, my 10 year old son refuses to get dressed in the morning. It takes so many arguments for him to even take his pajamas off. It's exactly the same whether it's a school day or weekend slash school holidays. I've tried being calm, walking away for 10 minutes. He still sits in his pajamas. I've threatened him with reducing his bedtime, removing his technology. I've shouted. I've cried. Oh, crikey. Um, He spends every other weekend at his dad's and tells me that he doesn't act like this at his dad's. I've run out of things to try. Any advice would be greatly appreciated. One very stressed out mum
1: oh gosh that does sound very very stressful and I think the most poignant thing there is I don't do this with my dad and, it, and it, I would question
0: is he saying that
1: yeah, or is it real exactly but and what, if you're on
0: good terms with dad maybe you should you just maybe you check should try and find story. out
1: but you know gosh that's a, that's a real there's a real barb in there yeah
0: exactly that's um, targeted
1: <laughs> so I think that this is about this boy, this 10 year old boy, demonstrating to the world, to his mum, possibly to his dad as well, that he has choices. Mm -hmm. You know, that he is not a parcel to be passed from one to the other. And I'm sure that's not how this is done. But maybe it's how he feels. Maybe he feels like he's, he's neither fish nor fowl. He's neither with one nor the other. And he's not impressed by this. Yeah. And, you know, to some extent, there's a reality to it. And, you know, it's not because you're it's not being done properly. It's just that it is happening. Um, but the story that it reminds me of is my second child uh, was this. This happened when he was much younger, but he went to a school where they had a school uniform and he found it unbearable that he had to wear this school uniform. And in fact, he would protest and refused to get dressed. He refused to get out of his pyjamas. He spent ages. I mean, it felt like hours, but actually it was only maybe the sort of half an hour that we needed, you know, that, that we had available to us to get dressed and up and out of the house and on our way. And it was a terrible, terrible argument every single day. And in the end, I resolved it by stopping talking about it, popping his clothes into a bag and bundling him into the car and saying let's go anyway and you can talk to your teacher Mrs Lyons about this when you get there and we never actually arrived at the school gates in his pyjamas because he would always work out a way of getting into his into his into his school clothes before we actually got there when when it stopped being a battle about me and it became how embarrassing it would be to appear in his pyjamas but the day that really helped me to understand what was going on for him and this whole thing about control was the very first day of the October halftime holiday when he came downstairs uh, for breakfast and for the very first time in his entire school career he was wearing his full school uniform, everything including his shoes and I was really impressed but also slightly worried because we weren't going to school that day and so I sat him down and I congratulated him very roundly on the on the success of him dressing himself and the choices that he'd made and all the rest of it and I said to him but the thing is we're not actually going to go to school today and he looked me full in the face and he said I know and the message was you don't get to decide the school doesn't get to decide what I wear I do because i 'm in control of all of this, and I think we forget sometimes how kids even ten year olds can end up feeling like they don't have choices and what your son is doing is he is reminding you that he has choices um, and my advice to you is to to forget about not getting dressed just just go with it put his whatever you want him to wear in a bag um, and don't turn it into a big fight but begin to think about what ways you can talk to him about the control and the choices and the and the the you know his powerlessness in this situation and what you can do to 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 make that feel a bit better for him
0: yeah i would say just try and avoid the 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 conflict with him as well you know if you're getting to the point where you're shouting and crying then yeah uh, you know no one's helping anyone at that point and I would say if you if you do have a good relationship with with your kid's dad it's worthwhile asking him just check is, it this, out. is this true and if it is true okay what are you doing differently to what I'm doing differently yeah because it can also be like we talked about this about in, in the co-parenting episode if kids have two totally different getting ready for school routines it can be really really stressful and what he might be saying is i like the way dad does it better and that doesn't mean that you have to adopt it but at least we'll give you extra information
1: yeah yeah
0: um all right i think that's it for now um as always everyone if you have a listener question let us know drop us a message on facebook or our instagram page let's talk about parenting podcast we're always happy to answer questions And if you are enjoying the podcast, please make sure to like, subscribe, write us a review, pass it on to your friends, uh, shout it from the rooftops. (laughs) We're happy with all of those options Um, and we will see you next time. Bye everyone. The Let's Talk About Parenting podcast is sponsored by Questa Kids, an online educational game for kids aged 7 to 12. Questa Kids follows Questa and Zeke on a journey around the world, travelling through time and teaches children about geography, history, maths, culture, and plenty more. Cuesta Kids makes learning fun.
1: So sign up today at questakids.com for a free 30-day trial. You can also get 15% off with the code LETSTALKABOUT.